The full rankings are out today for the 2022 best places to work in the federal government. NASA, the Government Accountability Office, and the Congressional Budget Office took the number one spots for large, mid-sized, and small agencies created by the Partnership for Public Service and the Boston Consulting Group. But even for some of the best places to work, employee engagement and satisfaction scores are still on the decline. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the partnership's president and CEO, Max Steyer. I think it's concerning. Whether I'm surprised or not, I am concerned. And it's not just this year. It's the fact that this is two years running, um, a more, much more consequential drop last year. Um, but we're going in the wrong direction, and that's not good for anybody. From what you've seen or heard or what the partnership has been looking at, what do you think are some of the contributing factors to this declining score? Worth recalling that this is uh, data that was collected last year, essentially mid-year last year, and uh, there was a lot going on. And, you know, federal employees, like every American, had to deal with inflation that was substantially higher than any of us could, you know, remember in, in near term, and it made a real difference for people's lives. You know, for federal employees, what's a little different is that they experience the the impact themselves directly, and many of them are again, on the front lines of trying to deal with the problem itself. We certainly had and continue to have turmoil over the operating condition of the government, like whether folks are required to be in office while they're working or they can work in other places. And I think uncertainty is not a good thing. In any sort of organizational context, it causes oftentimes more harm than, you know, answers that are unpleasant, but but at least are known. You know, you combine the increased workload from, uh, the many, many commitments that are being made at the federal level with the broader economic issues and the challenging work environments. And that's a you know tough combination. I think the message, however, for leaders in the Biden administration is that they have more to do. They need to step up. Um, that's their responsibility to deliver services to the public effectively. And having an engaged workforce is fundamental in, in, in the ability to succeed in doing that. One thing that was striking to me from the results was that, at least in the top 10 large agencies, only two actually increased their agency-specific engagement and satisfaction scores overall. Do you think that there's some sort of takeaway or, or lesson that agencies who maybe did a little bit better in the rankings, is there anything that other agencies maybe can learn from that? It's a good observation that even those that were on top still largely saw declines at the large agency level, and that's less true in the you know medium and small. And I think importantly, it, it's still the case that a quarter of the organizational components that we measured, so you know agency or subcomponent, they went up. And it's so important because we did just discuss many of the large environmental issues that. I think, play a role in, in in the decline. But the fact that a quarter of those agencies still went up tells you that good leaders can overcome difficult environments. And I think the consistent lesson for all of us is, you know, you need leaders who first and foremost care. So understand that this is a fundamental part of their job uh, is to create environments that engage their employees and to prioritize it because there's so much going on that the tendency, especially for short-term leaders, is to focus on what they think is the immediate delivery and not worry about the longer-term uh, investments that are, are important. 
and three, that they uh, have the skills and capabilities to succeed as, as leaders of these large organizations. These jobs are unbelievably hard, I believe way harder than the private sector. And we need people who have the right skills that are not policy experts, but, but large organization experts in these positions, and that they're supported for making the human investments that are fundamental to long-term success. In some of the conversations that I've had with agency leaders, when they look at the best places to work rankings, for example, uh, chief human capital officers at NASA over the years have talked about, you know, with their rankings, it's not necessarily as important where you fall compared to other agencies, but looking within your long-term trends within your own agency, does that hold true for you? Where, you know, where do you see the line between how much or where agency leaders should be paying attention to the results here? If you're an individual leader responsible for a single agency, I think you absolutely should be looking at the trend line and no one should feel like they can rest on their laurels uh, just because you know they're at the top, like a NASA, or give up because they're at the bottom. Like I think the trend line is is really fundamental. But no agency operates within a talent vacuum, and I think it's very important to benchmark yourself against your peer agencies and also against the private sector because once again, the federal government isn't even though it sometimes behaves this way, uh, a, a isolated island. It, it exists within the larger framework of a national labor market and private sector actors are competing for the best of talent against the federal agencies. So they need to provide not just the sense of purpose, which is profoundly special in the government, but also well-run, well-led organizations if they're going to not just recruit, but retain the best talent. So you need to do both. You need to look at your own individual trend line. You need a benchmark against you know, the the larger labor market, you need to understand what's happening and, you know, respect the fact that you may be swimming upstream against difficult issues, but you still can have an impact. Aside from the overall rankings, the partnership also measures different performance categories, things like pay, innovation, work-life balance, effective leadership. Scores from federal employees are generally on the decline there as well. Let's take work-life balance as an example. Where would you attribute that trend to? Federal agencies are being asked to do a lot more. You know, many of them have more resources for the first time, and that's exciting. But public servants are working hard. And I think that certainly the broader question of uh, the hybrid and the effacing of the line between your work environment and your home environment is presented not just to the federal workforce, but to, to many traditional office workers. I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, are, are operating in the same way, the deskless you know, workforce, which is very, very large. But for many federal employees, yes, they're facing that very difficult juggling act. And I think it shows up in the numbers. The bigger changes are on things like satisfaction of pay. And again, I think that's probably related to the inflation issues that have subsided, but were, were, that are still there and that were quite large when the data was collected. And, you know, I think the drop in, in you know, perspectives on empowerment in the leadership category is also pretty important. Um, the sense of autonomy that I think is very important to job satisfaction. Can you explain more why that drop in the score for leadership empowerment is significant for federal agencies? The distinct advantage the federal government has over the private sector, certain the, the for-profit sector, is that core mission focus. That's the, the purpose is, is overwhelmingly amazing. You know, the other big 
contributor to someone's experience at work is your boss and your frontline supervisor for sure and your senior leaders who present the you know the the the, the, either support a healthy effective supervisor group or not and the federal government has suffered relative to the private sector and the quality of experience with respect to leadership that remains the case you know the senior leaders in particular 25 point gap this time between supervisors and senior leaders one element we break this the leadership piece down into different components is this sense of empowerment. Do leaders offer employees a feeling that they have substantial or or appropriate control over the factors that they believe are necessary to do their jobs well? And that number went down. It's the lowest component of the the leadership scores that that we track. It helps provide some guidance, I think, for leaders to understand, you know, how do they turn this around? Part of it is by really giving their workforce both the skills and investment necessary to do their jobs well and the autonomy to do what they can do. Immediate supervisors do typically get higher scores than agency leaders. Why is that? And have you ever seen that trend reverse? It's almost a little bit a version of, you know, you're, you like your individual congressman, but you don't think well of Congress. A long time back, there was an example where that, that had flipped for a particular agency. That's very, very rare. A 25-point gap, which is what exists right now between supervisor and senior leader, that's very large. It doesn't have to be that large. So it may be that you'll always have or most always have the better perception of your frontline supervisor, but there's a lot of room for improvement for senior leaders before they get to the point of flipping it. The partnership's rankings last year saw a steep drop in satisfaction since 2020, and at the time, many people were saying the government was at something called an inflection point. There's this moment where agencies were seeing the scores decreasing, and it was up to them to take action to turn things around. Are we still at that inflection point a year later, and how do agencies turn things around from here? It's so important not to see this as a a sort of a, a sprint to the test where the goal is, you know, how do I just improve next year's scores? The longer term trend lines are really quite relevant, especially for the large agencies. It takes, you know, a considerable amount of time to to move the ship. You know, on one hand, one might argue, oh, it's a one point drop rather than a four point drop or whatever it is. I think it's the wrong direction for most agencies and it's the wrong direction for the overall government, for sure. How you turn it around is easy said, hard to do. The you know easy said is that you need leaders to first and foremost care enough that they prioritize this as an issue. And I think part of the challenge is that many leaders see their job as delivering for the present rather than investing for the future. There's understandable reasons for that, but I don't think at the end of the day they're the right, that's the right choice. Once again, even in an environment where you've seen decline, there's still a case that a quarter of the organizations went up. And I would look to those places and the leaders in those places and what they're doing for good examples of how to change things around. It's first and foremost an issue of of caring and prioritizing and then making the, the smart investments and building off success. Oftentimes people look at the broken elements of, of things and frankly, more progress can be made on building on your strengths often than trying to to deal with weaknesses. You should deal with weaknesses, but you know people overlook how important it is to build on strength. And even in organizations that are seeing declines, my bet is they have components that are bucking the trend and that are going up. And I'd be paying attention to what the leadership is doing in those components. 
Something that the partnership has done a lot of research on and just discussed a lot is public trust in government. Does that connect back to some of the trends that we're seeing in the rankings here? There is certainly a relationship. And I think public trust, first and foremost, is, I believe, fundamental to our long-term success, our health of our democracy, and the willingness of the public to look to our government and invest in our government for big issues. So I think that the connection to me is back to mission delivery and what most people need to, what everyone should understand is that um, this is not about happy employees. The employee engagement and satisfaction scores are about whether you have employees that are in environments that are going to generate the the, the best outcomes uh, for the American people. And I think one part of trust in government is the trustworthiness of government. So I don't think it's everything. Like, I think you can have a trustworthy government that people don't really understand and therefore don't trust as much as they should. But very, very hard to have a trusted government if it's not delivering effectively on what it's supposed to do. What would be a final message that you'd want to leave agencies with as they're looking at these results? The most important thing is how much this matters to the, the mission and purpose of, of each and every one of these organizations. And the more leaders uh, embrace that, the more they recognize that an engaged workforce is fundamental to the success of the mission of the agency, the more likely it is that they do the right thing, which is to care and prioritize and invest in outcomes that will generate healthy, engaged workforces. Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story and find more of this interview about the best places to work at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Agriculture Department's top research and education priorities. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? 
first of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. The Agriculture Department is in many ways mainly a research agency. 
My next guest came up through the ranks to run the 13,000-person Agricultural Research Service. Now she's the USDA's Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics, and its Chief Scientist. And she's also a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. Shavonda Jacobs-Young joins me now. Dr. Jacobs-Young, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, real quick, what's it like to go up into the heady heights of appointee status after being a long-term career federal employee? Well, Tom, you know, I've had 21 years of federal service in science administration, joining the Department of Agriculture in 2002 as the GS-13 National Program Leader and just fallen in love with science for agriculture. And it's been interesting as my responsibilities have grown over the years and moving into the senior executive service to be willing to step into more and more levels of higher responsibility, as you said. It's been an interesting climb over the past 22 years. And does Tom Vilsack come to you when something goes wrong in his garden? (laughs) He knows better than that. He goes to the the experts. And so I'm happy to connect him with the right people, with the solutions. All right. Well stated. And you are the Undersecretary for Research, Education and Economics. And maybe review for us, what are the priorities now in agricultural research? And how does education and economics tie into that? We're really facing a huge challenge globally not just in the United States, but how do we feed a growing population? Uh, We're expecting that our population is going to be over 9 billion by 2050. That's over a billion more mouths to feed. And we know that we want to be able to accomplish that, being great stewards of the environment. So uh, we don't want to increase land. We don't want to increase labor. And so we really have to have science and innovation to meet our challenges around addressing our climate change um, via climate smart agriculture, forestry, clean energy. Uh, We're working very hard in the Department of Agriculture to advance racial justice, equity, and opportunity, and build rural prosperity. We're trying to help our small and mid-sized farmers, or all of our producers, have more and better market opportunities so that they can be profitable in their farm production, whatever they decide to grow, wherever they decide to grow it. And we're tackling the important challenge of food and nutrition insecurity. So we're very hard at work every day. Science undergirds each one of those priorities. And so that's what our scientists are working on across the country. And our economists are studying and all of the important data that we provide to not just American agriculture, but global agriculture. Sure. And I guess the most basic form of equity is making sure everybody's fed properly. And you mentioned also that there are nine you know, billion people that are going to be on this earth. And I get the sense that for the agriculture department, there is the feeling that the research that is done while it benefits U.S. farmers, I guess maybe this is where the economics comes in, there is a huge export element to this because in many ways there's an obligation to help feed the world. Well, it's an obligation, you know, in a sense, and it has been our history. You know, the U.S. has been so productive in our agriculture. We've had tremendous success in growing productivity going back to the 1950s. You know, we think about Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution. And science has evolved a lot since then. We know more. We're doing different things. We're doing more. And so now, in addition to being productive, we want to also make opportunities for our producers to be profitable. We're seeing some big challenges in the graying of rural America. So many of our producers are 
fast approaching 58, average age of 58, average age of 60. And we know that if we don't create rural communities where people want to live and can thrive, that we're going to be challenged in terms of meeting the growing demand for food, fuel, fiber that we have, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. And when it comes to increasing productivity of farmland, which seems to shrink, I mean, you and I both live in the same suburban area of Washington, and I know there's apartment complexes and farms full of townhouses that used to be farms full of crops, you know, within our lifetimes. And so what are the big challenges for the next round of productivity? Is it DNA? Is it better fertilizers? Or, I mean, what's the grand challenge here in research? Well, we're actually showing how science and innovation can help us succeed at a time where we've had tremendous growth in agriculture, but we've also seen that it's been because of science and innovation, as I said earlier, because we know that we have an increased amount of land. When we see that, you just talked about all the apartments that are in Montgomery County. There are plants and animals we're using biotechnology, genetic and genomic technologies. We've been able to integrate big data, you know, being able to use artificial intelligence and machine learning so that we can do more on the land that is in production. So we're really working to address some of the challenges our farmers face with climate change. You know, when we talk about extreme drought, in some cases, extreme floods, extreme heat, the ability to use water that has um, high saline content because we need alternatives. So we're researching all of it. We're speaking with Dr. Shavonda Jacobs-Young. She's the Agriculture Department's Chief Scientist and Undersecretary for Research, Education and Economics. And I want to turn to you for a moment. You are a presidential rank award winner in the most recent class. Tell us about that. What did they cite in this award? Because they don't tell the public what people did. Well, thank you for asking. I'm honored to have received the presidential rank award, the distinguished one here in 2022. And, and in 2016, I was honored to have received the meritorious presidential rank award. And it has been built on my career in science for agriculture. And so as part of that award and the acknowledgement, just being able to share some of the things that I've done in terms of building up the scientific enterprise for USDA, for me, being in USDA for almost two decades and working in the area of science, being able to help stand up the Office of the Chief Scientist for the USDA, the first time that we had an Office of the Chief Scientist to support the Chief Scientist, in which, interestingly now, I am the Chief Scientist, and so it was wonderful to be the first director of that office leading the department in integrating its first scientific integrity policy in response to the White House's work around increasing scientific integrity across the country. And we're in a great position right now to really be responsive and help role model for others how to truly implement scientific integrity training and policies into the department. Looking at some of our investments around scientific infrastructure is one of my highest priorities, and that is to modernize scientific infrastructure for agriculture. And that includes our buildings and facilities. And so across the country, ARS, at the time I was ARS administrator, we have some $6 billion worth of buildings, you know, average age, you know, looking at 48, 50-year-old buildings. And it only takes one walk around a land-grant university campus and looking at the difference between the engineering buildings and the medical schools. And then there is our ARS facility right there in all of its 1964 glory. 
And so really working very hard to secure funding for investing in our buildings. And we've been able to, since 2015, I'm leading the agency and securing over a billion dollars to invest in those buildings and facilities to modernize them so that they're places where young people want to work and study and thrive and ultimately join us in agriculture. And high-performance computing, you know, have an opportunity to develop and establish the first scientific high-performance computing network for ARS first and now for the USDA. And now we are partnering with our land-grant universities across the country, really understanding that agriculture is high-tech. And because it's high-tech, we have lots and lots of data, and we need to be able to use that data in the optimum way. And that means being able to implement tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning, being able to share it, being able to use the cloud storage. And then really, the third part of that, which is really important, train a cadre of people who are able to help us with that. And so really putting a lot of funding in training and, and having fellows and postdocs so that we have the next generation of our data scientists for agriculture secured. So those are just some of the examples of some work that I've done that I believe supported my selection for Distinguished Rank Award. I will also talk about my work at the White House, really spending two years at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And after leaving OSTP, really continue to help have some leadership with National Science and Technology Council committees and subcommittees. So just staying very active in the space of agricultural science. And by the way, what is your particular specialty in agricultural science? Well, that's a great question, Tom. My PhD is in a field now called paper science and engineering. And so, yes, I know what you're thinking. Like, what? Wait a second. (laughs) And so I am from a college of forest resources and forestry is a part of USDA. Yes, indeed. And so that's how I entered the department is working with biofuels, forestry products and non-food products. And so that's how I joined USDA in 2002. Well, that's interesting because people may not realize that, you know, paper does require science and engineering. And, you know, if you know the difference between tissue paper and corrugated, then, you know, you begin to see the variety and the amount of research that does go into paper and wood-based products. So good for you. And a final question on the Ascend program. I know that's something important to you. It has benefited you and you hope it benefits some others. Right. So I am so excited about Ascend. It is the Agricultural Science Center of Excellence for Nutrition and Diet for Better Health. And we are so excited to have been able to work with Secretary Vilsack to launch Ascend late last year. And we've been working in response to the president's cancer moonshot 2.0. And Ascend is all around being able to integrate three components. It's doing nutrition research. It is collecting the best data around nutrition and it's engaging with the community. We believe that while there are very important roles for treating cancer and chronic disease, that USDA has an important role of helping to prevent some of the chronic disease, especially the disparities we see in minority communities. And so it's been one of the areas that I'm extremely passionate about. We've started this process by going out into the communities. Our first partnership was with Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, talking with predominantly African-American community. And we want to hear about people's lived experiences. Where do they get their trusted data? You know, how do they use this data? Who do they trust? And then what 
can we be doing to do a better job to address the nutrition disparities in those communities? And then secondly, we were in Laredo, Texas, a community that's 96% Hispanic and just had an overpouring of just uh, participation in both places. But hearing from people with lived experiences, the things that we can do to make their lives better and really share with people that for us, you know, I talk often about this in my community and my own family. Many of my ancestors died in their 50s. And for me, that is simply unacceptable. And primarily from chronic conditions, hypertension, diabetes, sure. stroke, kidney disease. This was the norm in my family. We that three-day trek to dialysis was well, not normal. And there are some things we can do. There are a lot of things that are outside of our control, but what we eat is not one of them. A few years ago, I think it was Health and Human Services had a program to get hypertension information and prevention and treatment out to, in this case, it was the black community. And one of their media for doing that was barbershops. And most ethnic groups have some kind of a center in some communities. It's the barbershop. It might be the social club in other communities. Any thought of using those types of community trusted local organizations to get that message out? That's why we partner with Southern University and their 1890 Center of Excellence. That's why we partner with Texas A&M International University and Representative Cuellar joined us in Laredo, Texas, because those are trusted members of the community. And so we're partnering with those folks who are already on the ground because we know how important it is for people to trust the information that they are receiving and to trust us with their stories. One of the parts of um, these programs have been people going into a booth and sharing their story. You know, you mentioned hypertension. Tom, I was diagnosed with hypertension. I think I was 19 or 20 years old. That makes two of us. I was a track athlete. I think I was 120 pounds soaking wet, five, 10 and a half. What was your event? A high jumper. Wow. I was a high jumper at North Carolina State University. And it just, to me, you know, the predeposition for hypertension was something that never gave a second thought to. So when I was diagnosed, it was kind of like, wow, this is interesting. Yet, I think almost every woman in my family has hypertension, but we just didn't talk about it. And what should I have been doing to maybe prevent the onset of it? And so now I've lived with it, you know, number of decades. We won't say how many. Um, And learning how to eat properly, how to to take my medicines, knowing that diabetes in my family has led to subsequent situations that could have been prevented, loss of limbs, loss of life, kidney failure. You know, there are all these things that, you know, it's a sort of a rolling set of events that could have potentially been prevented had we made some better choices about what we eat and how we move our bodies. And at the same time, though, the medical knowledge of what is a good diet has been a moving target over the decades. We haven't yet gotten to the point where it turns out bacon, cheddar, cheeseburgers are the best thing you can possibly have. But, you know, what was known wisdom in the 70s was very different in the 90s, very different now. So doesn't this also have to be accompanied by some really good basic research and data-driven looks at the whole nutrition question? And this is what we call precision nutrition, which is at the core of a sin for better health. Being able to take lived experiences, 
data from many different communities and being able to be more precise in the guidance that we give. We use things like the BMI right now. We know that's a standard that we have. Are there opportunities to improve upon that based on the different subpopulations that we serve? There are many opportunities for us to be more precise in how we provide guidance. We're not a one-size-fits-all. And I guess people can go to the USDA site and get more information about all of this? Absolutely. We encourage and invite people to follow us at USDA Science, at USDA Science. We would love to have their participation and have them share their stories if they're so inclined. And by the way, what is a good snack for people that want to keep their hypertension in, but really love potato chips? Everything in moderation, Tom. But a diet, you know, high in healthy fruit and vegetables, I think is a great place to start. All right, I'm going to bite that apple that's right here in my studio. Dr. Chavanda Jacobs-Young is the Agriculture Department's Chief Scientist and Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics. Pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining with me. Thank you for having me, Tom. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. The Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts keeps the busy system of courts' dockets running. It has information technology underpinning this work, but the Government Accountability Office said the court lacks a strategic approach to improving its IT staff. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management, Carol Harris. Ms. Harris, good to have you back. Thank you. And I have to ask you, is this the first time the GAO has looked at the court system, the judiciary branch? I don't recall another report on this. Yeah, it's not the first time we've done work within the judiciary branch, but it certainly is the first that we've done taking a look at IT management within the judiciary branch. And the administrative office of the courts then is not a court, but it is the underpinning enabling organization for the courts throughout the country? That's right. So they serve as the central organization within the federal courts to provide IT services, which is why we focused on the administrative office. And I think the first time anyone ever saw a computer in a courtroom was the O.J. Simpson trial with Judge Ito and his laptop there. And at this point, the courts are pretty rich in IT, fair to say? I mean, do they have a pretty good base there? 
Oh, yes. They've come a long way since then. How many people work in IT for the court system? Right now, it's about 420 staff as of March 2022, and that comprises about one-third of AO's total staff. So that's a big percentage. Yeah, that's a huge percentage. For organizations that size, you know, we would expect to see somewhere between like 160 to maybe 200 folks. So about half of that. So when you point that out to the Judiciary Committee in Congress, the committees, they're going to probably question you on that one also. Most likely, but I think it speaks to the inefficiencies of, of how IT is managed within the judiciary branch and why, again, it's so important to have that CIO in place to be able to identify those efficiencies that can cut across those departments. I mean, what is the major function of IT? Case management? So within the administrative office, I mean, they're broken down into three departments. And what's interesting, while they are the IT providers for the federal courts, their management of IT and their IT workforce is actually very highly decentralized. So within these three departments, they operate almost like autonomous shops where they have their own IT, they manage their own IT. So within their administrative services, they're the ones that are providing the IT systems that support their budgeting, accounting, HR, and procurement functions, sort of like the commodity IT. And then they've got program services, to your point, you know, that manage the judiciary's case management systems. They provide the support to the federal judges, clerks, the federal defenders, and so forth. And then the technology services department, which manage the IT infrastructure. And this decentralized nature, is it analogous to the way Congress, a lot of that work is decentralized because each member is kind of like its own little small business, even though there's a major. Would that be a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And let's talk more about the workforce. You found that they don't really follow the major good practices that you have previously identified for workforce management. That's right. So we focused on, yeah, their their IT workforce in particular because this was our first foray into their IT management. Um, and what we found, we, you know, we focused on strategic planning, on recruitment and hiring, training development, and performance management. And what we found was that within recruitment and hiring and training and development in particular, AO still has quite a, a long ways to go. While they identified, for example, that like cybersecurity skills gaps, you know, that, that's present there, they requested, in fact, $75 million for cyber-related salaries and expenses for FY22, which was about a 33% increase over the prior year. Well, they didn't report to management its progress in addressing those cyber skill gaps in their IT workforce. And, and in fact, they lacked metrics for monitoring how effective its recruiting and hiring efforts were at addressing those skill gaps. And so that was an issue. And also, as far as training and development, they had yet to perform any formal assessments of their staff IT training. So there was no way to tell if the courses were actually contributing to improved performance and results. But on the bright side, though, in terms of performance management, AO did substantially implement that area where they had mechanisms in place to provide regular performance feedback to their staff. All right. So a couple of questions. And by the way, we're speaking with Carol Harris. She's Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management at the GAO. My first question gets back to cybersecurity, and that is that must be a really big issue because in addition to the integrity of the court system itself, so much evidence nowadays that is held by the courts as part of trials is electronic evidence, you know, things gained Mm -hmm. from people's computers and logs and so forth. So I imagine a little bit of inattention to cyber could really affect court cases, ultimately. 
Absolutely, which is why when we looked at the IT workforce, it's so important for them to identify those skills gaps and have a comprehensive plans as to whether they have right-sized their staffing for the mission that they serve. And certainly with cybersecurity, it's great that they did identify that they had skills gaps, but it's very important to have those metrics in place to ensure that they are effectively closing it, especially because of the sensitivity of the information that they hold. They want to make sure they have solid people there to adequately protect their systems. And when I look at the major IT workforce areas and I see that performance management, as you mentioned, is substantially implemented, but training and development, recruitment and hiring and strategic planning are only minimally or partially implemented, that means they're great with people once they get them, but they're not very good at the feedstock level. Yeah, so the feedback that they're providing their their staff are, you know, it's it's pretty robust. But certainly the training and development, when they're there, they need to do a better job there to ensure that their folks are properly trained and then also providing those metrics to ensure that the training that they are providing is actually serving the mission. And on recruitment and hiring with minimally implemented best practices there, that's kind of something they share with the administrative or the executive branch of government, and that is the whole outreach, recruitment, retention, hiring is a challenge. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if that could be because they're not working that hard at it, because they certainly have a compelling mission as much as any executive branch agency. Or do you think maybe it's because people look at the courts and see chaos nowadays just because of how long it takes to schedule things? And there's been some not so great court publicity lately. Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly have a compelling mission. I, I think the primary root cause that we've identified is that AO lacks a CIO who is responsible for the recruitment and the hiring of their IT workforce and managing that IT workforce. And that actually goes to our final finding within the report, which really you know speaks to why they don't have a robust foundation in their IT workforce planning, as well as their IT project management. And it, it's because... They don't have a single person that's accountable for the performance of the IT investments that cut across the enterprise. And by the way, the head of the administrative office of the U.S. courts, who does that person report to? That's the director. The director reports to the judicial committee, and they are a group of federal judges that are responsible for making decisions about IT policy for the entire court system. So he reports to that committee. And that committee changes composition periodically? That's my understanding, yes. Yeah, well, that's a whole other area of study one of these days to see how the courts, how do they, you know, who runs that whole thing? How, it seems to be a self-sustaining amoeba-like mechanism. And now you have made a really long list of recommendations here. I don't recall too many we reports did. that have 18. What yes, are they basically did. driving at? So the 18 recommendations really identified improvements for addressing the gaps that we identified relative to the IT workforce, as well as in IT project management. Um, What we did was we looked at the three largest IT projects within the administrative office, and we found that, you know, for the most part, you know, they're doing a pretty good job in complying with supplier agreement management best practices. But they only partially implemented the majority of project management best practices uh, related to, for example, cost estimating and schedule management. We did find that their cost estimates were not comprehensive and their schedules were just not well constructed. So we provided recommendations relative to those particular areas. But the most important one, in my mind, relates to the CIO and making a recommendation that they hire a CIO who is responsible for all of the IT within their organization. 
And does the Judiciary Committee here that runs this and with the CIO and the and the director of the administrative, where do they live? Are they like in the Supreme Court building or where does this whole apparatus physically live? The AO is outside of the Judicial Committee. And so, again, you know, they report to the Judiciary Committee. Um, the CIO would live within the AO and report to the director. And he or she would have purview over the, the three departments within AO to ensure that they are responsible for the IT investments as well as the IT workforce and have all of the responsibilities that a CIO would have within the executive branch. And I was just wondering where their office is. Is it in Washington somewhere? It's not like the basement of the Supreme Court building or anything. No, I don't believe so, but they are located in, in Washington. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. The Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, known as USERRA, it's a 1994 law that protects service members and veterans from discrimination because of their service. Now the Merit Systems Protection Board has clarified some of those rights under USERRA, as we hear from Tully Rinke's national security partner, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you on. Glad to be here, Tom. What has happened with the MSPB and USERRA? This is, I thought, was kind of settled law, but apparently there's some, some new twists here. Yes, Tom, the board is moving into a longstanding agenda items from the past decade, more or less, things they haven't addressed, but have needed some treatment. The surprise on this decision regarding veterans is that the board just decided that uh, it would not take uh, reprisal allegations, retaliation allegations on equal employment opportunity cases. But now they've turned around and said they will do that for veterans which is a substantial broadening of protection for our veterans who work for the federal government. Uh, surprisingly, people don't realize that it's the federal government who discriminates against 
veterans is why we have to have these protections. And the board has said that if you are attacked by federal supervisors and managers because you've exercised a right of filing a complaint, the board will entertain that. Uh, The very interesting part of this is they used a provision of the law, the uh, sufficiently pervasive to alter the conditions of employment clause, which many of us have tried to use for a variety of causes over the last 20 years. They actually resorted to that to give uh, veterans standing to sue in front of the board for this. So it's a big win for vets. Well, let me just ask you about the connection between USERA violations and EEO types of complaints. Those tend to be discrimination based on gender or age or racial affiliation. How does that relate over to USERA and map to veteran status or or military service member status? So for both USERA and EEO, you, you have to remember that those laws address both private and public employment. For the board, we're talking only about rights of public employment. And so at the beginning of any case, it's very important for counsel to work with client to decide what is going to which tribunal. There are certain things that if it goes forward, for instance, as a mixed case, you're going to lose out uh, a hearing on the board side. At the same time, uh, you may be going forward with the EEO process. The same with USERA. There are provisions to go into district court with USERA. The nice thing about being able to go to the board, frankly, is it's cheaper for veterans. So uh, Title V is set up. The board's jurisdiction is set up, actually. So veterans could, if they wanted to, even represent themselves. That's very hard to do in federal district court. I think it's also unwise to do before the board, but you know, I'm a lawyer, so you know, that's, I would make that statement. So part of this is getting them access to the board, which remember, the Merit Systems Protection Board stepped in and was created, actually, uh, because of a backlog of cases in the federal courts in the 1970s. So even though we think it's all clogged up and it doesn't do its job properly now, uh, after 40 years, when it was set up, it was set up because all the cases were clogged up and not moving forward. So there is advantages to be able to go forward with the board But it's important at the very beginning of the case to decide what is going to which tribunal uh, and have a strategy so that you don't end up getting far down the pike with one tribunal and then find out that uh, they don't have jurisdiction or you don't have standing. And this is expanded standing for veterans in front of the board. We're speaking with attorney Dan Meyer. He's national security partner of the law firm Tully Rinke. And so what we're seeing then is a reversal of policy by the MSPB to take USERA-based EEO complaints that they were not taking in earlier years, just to summarize? Yeah, if you had brought this type of retaliation or reprisal complaint previously, it probably would have been dismissed. You would have had to take it over into federal district court through USERA's provisions. And frankly, judges in Article Three courts are not big on reprisal cases. They don't like to think about that as protecting their own sources as judges. It's just a cultural issue that we've never socialized judges to think about protecting the sources in the process in the same way that the board is culturally sensitive to protecting sources because of its relationship with the Office of Special Counsel and other federal whistleblower programs. All right. Well, let me ask you this then. In your experience, what types of violations of USERA do we commonly see anymore? Well, this is really complicated. You know, almost a third of the federal workforce are veterans. And I think that engenders 
a lot of uh, animosity towards vets. I think non-vets see them as being kind of piggies at the trough and honing in on protected jobs and cushy jobs in the federal government. What the non-veteran in the federal workforce forgets is that the veteran's there because the veteran has paid up front. You're not born a veteran, okay? And that's not like other minorities where you're born into a particular status that society has not treated you well for. A veteran steps forward to do a public mission that has to be done while others do not. We have an all-volunteer force, so you do not have to serve non-veteran because a veteran stepped in and did your job for you. That's the veteran's perspective. They don't articulate it because they're pretty humble people. From the non-veteran perspective, they just see it as competition in the workplace, and they see somebody getting something that they don't get, and they get angry about it. And if that person progresses up to a supervisor or manager, it can become a very nasty anti-veteran culture within, within a federal agency. So there's all sorts of things, and people can try to bypass the veteran's preference rules. People can make assumptions about veterans that are wrong. I'll just give you one. Uh, it is from the private employment field. But I went into an interview in a company that no longer exists called MCI. And in the middle of the interview, I had just come back from Desert Storm. I was asked by a rather junior member of the panel whether I would go postal. And, Yikes. You know, I, I was shocked by the question because I, I didn't even make the connection that I was a veteran and somebody might think that I would cook off in the workplace and hurt somebody and use a pejorative term going postal, which is very pejorative towards postal workers. But that's the kind of, and I didn't file a complaint because, you know, I, I went on to another job I actually enjoyed more. But that's the kind of animus that can exist out there. And it just always shocks the conscience that that would exist inside the federal government, which is in charge of the mission that veterans accomplish. Sure. It's, uh, I, I think there's, it's a very complicated cultural issue. Veterans are not the same type of minority as other minorities in the federal government. It's not a visual minority. It's not one that's apparent. You don't know that somebody's a veteran when you see them walking down the hall. And because of that, I think it takes special training and special sensitivity. Sure. All right. Let me ask you this. As the time progresses and more and more people coming into the government might not have been veterans because right now we're not producing them at the rate that we did earlier, do you think that there are people that just have a cultural or a social bias against the military or military activities could become more prevalent at the managerial levels and cause problems for people that did serve? Tom, it's already happened. You know, after World War II, I think 75 percent of Congress was veteran. In the workplace, there were non-veterans who did not get jobs after World War II because they were reserved for vets who went over to fight the Axis powers. So starting with a high point of maybe the mid-1950s, by the time you get to the all-volunteer force of the late 1970s, when the people, people now think if you register for the draft, you somehow serve. No, no, you just registered for the draft. We haven't invoked the draft for good reasons since the 1973 or so. So it's 1%, I think, was the number that fought in Southwest Asia of the country. And so 1% pays for the national security and the 99% profits. And I think the problem has been not so much that managers haven't served so they can't understand the needs of the veterans in the workplace, because we have managers who are not African-American but can understand the EEO requirements quite well. The big challenge has been in the messaging, and this needs to come from OPM and OMB and the White House and from Congress, 
and making the connections, not just thanking people for their service. I really hate that phrase. It really rings hollow to me. <laughs> uh, but, but thinking about what the person actually did. When you get in your car and you drive somewhere this weekend, people going on vacations all over the country, do people make the connection between global energy needs and what that veteran did for 20 years? It's never nice to say that, you know, some of our national security is about securing energy sources for ourselves and our allies, but that's a lot what our guys were doing. So that's the problem is that we don't make the connection in our daily life between the benefit the government gives us and who provides that benefit and the fact that we're not the one providing the benefit. Everybody likes to get something for free, and that includes the benefits of national security. Attorney Dan Meyer is national security partner of the law firm Tully Rinke. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, Tom. Anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out, I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. When the Space Development Agency launched 10 satellites last week, it was as much a victory for its acquisition program as for its satellite development program. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr attended the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Security Forum last week and got some of the details. But you didn't get to go to the launch itself, though, huh? I'm really sorry I didn't in sunny California. All right. Well, they're loud and light-filled and smoke-filled and lots of fun if you like big, smoky, loud things. But tell us about the satellite launch. What were you able to learn there? Well, the 10 satellites were launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base uh, near San Luis Obispo in California. And it was the first of 28 satellites that SDA is calling Tranche Zero. The idea is to put lots of smaller, cheaper satellites into the air, satellites that they can get pretty quickly. These satellites are low-Earth orbit satellites, they're LEOs, and they're going to be used for communication and training. SDA is pushing forward with this group of satellites, and they have a new launch coming up pretty soon. Here's Space Development Agency Director Derek Turnier. Then in June, we have the second launch. So the Tranche Zero is made up of 28 total satellites. 
What the whole idea is that will demonstrate that we can form a mesh network with multiple vendors. We can take those tactical data, get them directly down to theater, and we can do advanced missile detection of targets that, that uh, we don't typically see and track and form targeting solutions on and demonstrate that entire thing. And just to be clear, what they did is launch 12 of these satellites from a single rocket launch, correct? Yes, 10 satellites. 10 satellites, so they sort of popped out of the pea pod, but there was only That's one right. actual rocket that went into space. Yeah, so small satellites here. And what do they have to do next with Tranche Zero? I guess they got to get them coordinated and programmed, or what? They're getting ready for the second launch with different rockets. And the, aside from the launch itself, the real news here is, is actually the acquisition process. They went from authority to, to proceed to launch in just two and a half years. Space Force has been pushing forward pretty aggressively to shorten the acquisition and production times. And after they finish with this 28 satellites, they're going to move forward with Tranche 1, slated to launch next year. Here's Derek Turnier again. When we launch the real Tranche 1, which is our first operational tranche, we can turn those data quickly and turn that into an operational capability, and the warfighters have already been training on it. So we're actually only 18 months away from our first Tranche 1 launch, which is, which is pretty exciting. So Tranche 1 has about 150 satellites on it to be able to do the, the missile warning, missile tracking, and that tactical data link uh, connectivity. That starts to launch next September, and then we essentially have, we have 12 launches, and uh, they'll probably be about a month apart. All right, and then they are keeping this program on schedule, which is something in itself, as you say, with the acquisition programs. How have they been able to do that? And are they expected to stay on schedule? You know, Tom, they had a few delays early on. The first of those satellites was originally scheduled to launch in 2022. And the original cost was supposed to be $14.1 million per satellite. It came out averaging about $15 million per satellite. And as you see, they just finish launching that first group. But the big picture is that Space Force is considering this a victory for its method of developing and buying satellites. Here's Derek Turnier. Pillar number one is proliferation, hundreds and hundreds of satellites to be able to provide these missions. And number two, the spiral development. We've got to get out of this model of where we do acquisition and it takes us 10 years to develop a program and then uh, we, we fly the program for 15 years. The department and the Space Force is leading that way now, saying, no, we are, we are completely behind this model where we, we do, we do rapid, rapid prototyping and fielding. We operate that for a limited lifetime, say five years, and we continue to build that up. That's a lot of stuff flying around in orbit, low Earth orbit. I guess tranche zero sounds a little bit like kind of glorified space junk if it's not doing anything. But getting back to the acquisition model, is this something that the Space Force will use throughout its other commands because it seems to be successful. It sounds like they are doing that. And what Space Development Agency is saying, look, we've followed this program and it's working for us. They're also very quick to give credit to Space Force Acquisition Chief Frank Calvelli. He developed nine tenets of good acquisition policy. And those tenets include building smaller satellites, smaller ground systems, and minimizing non-recurring engineering. He also says you have to award executable contracts and then make sure they get delivered on time, on cost, and with capabilities that work. Here's Derek Turnier. One can actually build and launch these satellites on the time frames that we've proposed. We'll show that again here in June, and we'll continue to show that as we build out in Field Tranche 1, which will allow us to be able to bring the capability directly to the warfighter to support a fight in 2025. 
And so that's what, that's what we're excited about. We'll continue to push forward with this. Uh, we'll continue to follow the way this is, this is enabled is by using Secretary Calvelli's tenants, which if you, if you read those tenants, they essentially codify everything SDA is doing. So you can tell we have a lot of support there. One of the things that they keep repeating is how much better it is to build these small satellites. And not only are they cheaper and faster to get a hold of, but the idea is that they're, they're a good defensive capability because it's hard to shoot down so many of them. I heard one of the Space Force generals saying last week that the missile to shoot down one of these satellites would actually be more expensive than the satellite itself. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. When you look at satellites, say, take the James Webb telescope, there's one of them, and it took 20 years to build, and I don't know how many billions and billions and billions of dollars and a billion-dollar launch to launch it, and it's paying off great results. At the opposite end is you can build 100 of them in a year and a half and get those launched. So it's really a wide range of technologies, and good to see Space Force having this redundancy because, as you say, even if China shoots down one, there's 100 more. Right. They sort of, It's the swarm theory. And again, it's more expensive to shoot them down than it is to have them up there. Of course, it could be worth the price if you were able to take out the enemy's communications. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.